Hey there, welcome to the Disco Posse podcast, and this is one of those fun ones, because you actually get to hear the really fun technical snafu that happens right in the middle, but it doesn't cut into the conversation, which is one you're going to enjoy, from Rob Carpenter. He's the founder and CEO of Valiant AI, which is something that's really, really cool because he talks about the idea of AI as a digital employee. This is especially being used in the area of conversational AI in fast food ordering. So really, really cool. In fact, I bet you've already used one and you don't even know it. And speaking of conversation, you want to have a great conversation? Let's talk about data protection. I know it seems unexciting some days, but you know why it's unexciting? Because you need to make sure that you've got Veeam to protect your assets. And that means everything from your on-premises world to your cloud to your digitally native experiences that you're running in Microsoft Teams, Office 365, and there's many more neat things that are coming. So hang on tight. You'll see lots of good stuff. But let's save the conversation because no one wants to have that Monday morning conversation. What happened to the app? It went away this weekend and we can't get it back. That won't be a problem if you use Veeam. So go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. They are the leader in data protection and real, true, anywhere, always on availability for your application. So get it done. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse and see what it's all about. Speaking of protection, remember that as you're moving around and you're on the road, or even if you're just trying to protect your identity and protect your data in transit, the best thing you can do is use a VPN. I know I use one, especially for not just day-to-day stuff, but being able to make sure I can do testing against my services from different parts of the world to see what the behavior is and what latency is. So whether you're an application tester or whether you just want to make sure that you keep your identity safe, you can use ExpressVPN. I'm a fan of the team and, and love the product. So the easy way to do this is go to try expressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse. I make it really super easy by just naming it after me. But go check it out. And one of the places you should make sure you do it, don't go to coffee shops, get your own coffee. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com. And while you're doing that, strap in. This is Rob Carpenter, the founder and CEO at Valiant.ai. And this is an absolute must listen. He's a fantastic human. We talk about EO, we talk about Valiant, we talk about a lot of things. Enjoy. Perfect. My name is Rob Carpenter. I'm the founder and CEO of Valiant AI, and you are listening to the Disco Posse podcast. I feel like I should have for the for this one, I should have your platform introduce us, Rob, because first of all, I've listened to a lot of content. So I am excited by what we're about to discuss. This is something that's near and dear to a space of study that I've been in and looking more around the business side of it. And the idea of conversational AI, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of great folks on the show who've are in the space and it's just so exciting. It brings interesting emotions when we talk about the advantages and what the potential displacements are. So there's a a lot of really good stuff that I'm 
going to love hearing from you in your real first world and first person view of it. So before we get going, Rob, if you want to give yourself an intro for people that are new to you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So just new to me, I'm uh, originally from Alaska. So grew up on the uh, right on the Bering Sea at the top of the Aleutian chain. Probably one of the more random backgrounds you'll hear out of somebody. Uh, we that is the first. That is the first. Definitely yeah. a win. <laughs> yeah, we literally had like grizzly bears roaming around in our backyard, and we could go out and you know fish from the bank and catch 20, 30, 40 pound uh, king salmon. So it was a very uh, interesting life. But you know, very early on, uh, I really had a big interest towards entrepreneurship and starting businesses. I just kind of looked at, you know, hey, the people that are living the life that I want to live, other than astronauts, what do they do? And almost every one of them uh, were entrepreneurs, people that had built and founded companies. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and started to kind of get an idea of, you know, how a different part of society worked that I didn't fully understand. And ended up getting an undergrad degree in entrepreneurship, ended up in 2010 out in Denver, Colorado, got an MBA with a specialization in enterprise technology management, founded a, uh, a mobile application development company, did my first M&A transaction ever acquiring a company in India, took a year and we literally run into problems because we were using the wrong type of ink on our paperwork. So it was a tremendous oh, learning wow. opportunity. Yeah. Grew, uh, grew that company to seven figures in revenue, but like anybody listening to this podcast, I mean, service-based businesses are just really hard. You are constantly out hunting and killing, and you're only as good as your current project portfolio that you have, and it was exhausting. And so when I ultimately came up with the idea for Valiant AI, I was just really excited to transition into a product-based business. And so I've been running this company now for five years since making that transition. Wow. And this is a, a great place to start, Rob, because by the time you can say what you're doing, you have to have been doing it for a while. When you're in the product world, especially one that's in the area of AI and you've got a very you've chosen your specific targeted customer niche, which is the right thing to do because too many people can you can get big eyes at the buffet, as they say. It's very yeah. easy to think of too many use cases. But you know, five years in now, when was kind of the first time you felt like you could really go to the world and say, we're here? Like it's, this is something that takes a while to develop to even get to that MVP kind of customer ready uh, environment, right? I mean, you talk to anybody that's in the conversational AI space and there's like a little bit of puffing your chest for a few minutes. Then there's a little bit of like actual bonding and within 20 minutes you're at a therapy session uh it's amazing how quickly uh you end up in that space it's it's hard you know and i think we've been at it like i said for five years we've seen a lot of companies come and go we've had our own like serious kind of soul searching do we need to look after another industry and i think conversational ai and and maybe to some degree ai in general is just so hard because you can do proof of concepts or really simple demos fairly quickly. Like, I mean, literally in a weekend, you could put a demo together, but then when you actually try to bring a product to market, it is just crushingly and painfully hard to get to a true, you know, fully functional, especially for what we're trying to do. I mean, we're trying to emulate an employee, right? I mean, it's hard enough to get Google home to understand my wife when she asks for a music request, let alone something that's as capable as a human. So, 
when did I think we were going to be there? I mean, at any point you ask me, I'm like, we're three months away. Man, we are so close. Just another three months and then another three months and then another three <laughs> months. And a painful uh, statement that has always stuck out in my mind. It was either the, the CTO or the CEO of SoundHound said it takes three years to realize you're 10 years away. Uh, and so I desperately hope we're not 10 years away. Now, we are in market. We have a product. We are you know, automating orders today. But like anybody in the AI space, you know, we do have human in the loop backup support. And so the question really is, how fast can we reduce the reliance on those humans in the loop and get to a point where it is just pure AI without any outside support? This is the, the real interesting thing. And when we talk about what it is that you're doing, it's a, an experience that will be viscerally understood by people because they're going to know what it's like being on the other side of yeah that that little box so rob if you want let's give a give a bit of a walkthrough of of what valiant's doing and where your first customer use cases are yeah so when we initially came up with the idea for what became valiant we and and i kind of early on knew we wanted to pick one industry i mean it's good conventional wisdom pick a beachhead own it and then strike out into other industries from a place of strength and so i sat down i kind of came up with my own rubric of 10 to 15 categories and then identified roughly 20 different industries you know we were at that time a a future solution in search of a problem so it's like where could this technology be applied and so we ultimately settled on the restaurant industry now there are kind of some cons to the restaurant industry that people are familiar with in terms of you know low margin a lot of price pressure things like that with things like point of sale systems there's a lot of uh, pressure and commoditization so there are some challenges to the restaurant industry but relative to some other big market verticals like take retail for example the nice thing about restaurants is you tend to have a more limited domain set especially as you look at quick serve restaurants or fast food you might have 75 to 150 different menu items a couple of permutations on there and then maybe a few hundred other key terms ketchup fork napkin things like that but it is a very limited domain set and although I don't always agree with everything Kai Fu Lee says, if you read his book, AI Superpowers, you know, he talks a lot about the importance of kind of a vertical integration approach, at least in these early stages of AI. And I do fully agree with that. And so we decided that, you know, restaurant was really where we were going to make our mark. And so we've pretty much been super focused on it in five years. And we've turned a lot of companies away and a lot of other verticals. And we've just tried to stay hyper, hyper focused on this one key space. And then for us specifically, what we look at where we see the most demand from the market is around drive-through automation. So there was interest prior to COVID, but over the you know year and a half of the kind of first round of COVID, drive-through became one of the most important areas in in, inside of the entire U.S. restaurant industry. And you're talking an $865 billion per year market. A lot of the quick serve restaurants we talked to, they were up 30% year over year. So you look at how painful it's been for sit down, you know, high end, fast casual. Those restaurants all suffered under COVID. Fast food, boom. I mean, they did huge business and 90 to 95 percent of that business was done through drive through. So it was a, a just serendipitous place 
for us to be having three years of kind of wind in our back at the point that all this came about. And I was on a call this morning with a restaurant operator and they're already seeing another big surge in terms of demand for drive-through as we go into kind of the Delta variant of COVID. So we hyper-focus on that one specific use case. We manufacture our own hardware. We stick it inside the restaurant. It hooks into the technology that the employees use for their headsets to talk to the customers in the drive-through. We currently process everything in the cloud. The goal would be in a year to move towards edge computing so we can do everything on site even when the internet goes down. And then we have our own proprietary speech-to-text engine, NLP engine, and then what I refer to as the natural language generator or just kind of uh, more vaguely just the logic engine. It's kind of the common sense brains of the system. So we've developed all those systems in-house to specifically address this one use case. There's so much good stuff. I could do an hour on each subset. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> uh, so the first of all, just the fact that we refer to QSR, I love this quick serve restaurants because fast food has is like a pejorative at this point. So because you just think of just negative connotation of of yeah. food, but as a as an industry, like you said, the the address of a market is is fantastically huge. In especially now that people are are moving to this idea, they want to get out of their house, but they don't want to be sitting in a restaurant in, yeah. in a risk situation. So it's kind of a really good mix. But quick serve restaurants, like you said, they they've got a specific target, and it's a very repeatable thing. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I think of, and I know people are listening and thinking isn't this going to get rid of somebody wearing that headset? And that's why I want you to allay those fears because I, I know a lot of my own reasoning that I do not believe that. But, Rob, firsthand, you're in this. Yeah. That, that's got to be, a, a, I'll say, a common, if not a top objection when you talk about the value of what you can do with Valiant. You know, and for whatever it's worth, interestingly, when we talk to end customers, employees, the brands, none of them bring it up. They're generally not worried about it. It tends to be all of the media interviews and it's about 100% that it comes up. So I'm glad we're addressing it right out of the, great, out of the gate because it is a very important topic for us to touch base on. So specifically what we're talking about right now is labor repurposing. So the person that's in that order taker position, and this was something that I learned along the way, 90% of all QSR restaurants across the country, that order taker is also doing sometimes three or four additional jobs to order taking. So it's not a dedicated position. So really what we're doing is we are automating a task and that task may take that order taker 50% of their time, but they still have to process payment. They still need to fill up soft drinks. They still need to clean up after spills. They're being pulled in multiple different directions simultaneously. We talked to one, I'd say a top seven QSR brand and their order taker on average is doing five jobs. And so the critical thing for them is like, we just need to automate this task because that person's life is really hard. Turnover is really high. And there are only certain subsets of their employees that they can even put into that position. So it's a really critical challenge for them to figure out, figure out how to like backstop all those employees and just make their lives better. 
That I think is a kind of microeconomic view of the situation. If you also step back and look macroeconomically at the service and specifically restaurant industry, there's 1.4 million unfilled positions in the United States today. So even if we were taking a whole position, which we're not, it's just task automation, there's still not even the people to do those jobs. I mean, you go anywhere and you're going to see help wanted signs on pretty much every single business. Look at the airline industry, especially as our economy was starting to recover over the summer. It was a nightmare. I mean, look at Spirit Airlines, right? I mean, those guys practically went bankrupt because they had to cancel like three weeks worth of flights because they just literally didn't have people to work. Yeah. Alaska Airlines, they're near and dear to my heart. They were forcing executives in Seattle to go out and do baggage handling work on the tarmac. Executives, you're talking like VPs of marketing or chief operating officers hauling luggage because the labor shortage was so acute for them. So we're really helping these restaurants because they cannot find the labor. And on average within the industry, turnover is 150 to 300% per year. So you have a really hard time finding somebody. When you can find someone, you're refilling that position one to three times per year. And if they do stick, that person's being asked to handle five different jobs simultaneously. And that is a perfect application of AI or more generally robotics. When you don't have enough people to go around, the job is monotonous, it's dangerous, it's boring, automate it. Let humans focus on the things they're better at than doing something that is just a repetitive task over and over and over again. There How's that, folks? That's perfect. I, this is <laughs> as number one, you've you've affirmed my belief in that we are not removing roles we are in fact elevating people into more opportune roles and i love that you know such perfect examples and and thank you for bringing numbers to it as well like we can see the the impact there it's it's frightening right people think of this idea that we're you know that like of course last night as we're recording this uh, they the news hit that we're creating the Tesla bots. And so immediately oh, oh, there's this thought, the <laughs> somehow that Elon is looking to get rid of the citizens of earth and replace them all with robots. And, uh, you know, there, it's such a, like you said, it's such a media frenzied reaction just because it's something to talk about that they know can trigger someone to listen and I guess when you're in that business, that is your, that's your business is getting people to listen, getting people to read. And these kind of tropes are so easy to latch onto. But you know, like you said, when you, when it comes down to it, the people who are you're talking to that are going to use these systems in their own environment that they're working in, they're like, thank you, Rob bring it on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think too, I mean, we got to get a little more nuanced with things as well, because innovation has always been part of human society. It's, you know, woven into the fabric of the American psyche. What we need to be concerned about, which is why I think this question is important and we should talk about it, is the pace of innovation. If we look and we step back and we say a hundred years ago, you know, turn of the last century, something like 95% of the entire U.S. labor force was involved in the agrarian industry. And I don't know about you, but I really love going into my office and sitting at my quiet desk with a warm cup of coffee or playing ping pong with my team or grabbing a beer for a happy hour, you know, versus being out and working with livestock or, you know, out picking vegetables. 
Not that there's anything wrong with those types of jobs, and it's obviously critical to our survival as a species. But if you look at where we are today, it's something like 1.3 or 1.4 percent of the entire U.S. labor force is still involved in the agrarian industry. So we have more food than we've ever produced, you know, in the history of human civilization. And we went from 95 percent of people involved in that to one and a half percent. That is innovation. Innovation is not bad. That has made a lot of people's lives a lot better. I think where we have to get concerned, and I think this was maybe a bigger fear five years ago, but it's just the pace of innovation too quick because there's a natural attrition of jobs every year and the creation of new jobs, right? Like 20 years ago, who would have thought social media manager would be such a critical position and now it is, right? So like that's innovation. If the pace of innovation is too fast, that's when it creates problems because then you're losing too much of the workforce before you can replace it with new jobs. And I think that big, big fear does come down to some element of conversational AI automating service-based work and white collar jobs. And then I think the other big part of it was everything going on with like self-driving cars, for example, right? Like, cause truck driving, that's the number one profession in 26 states in the United States. So if all that gets automated and then all customer service work gets automated, that's a big problem. But going back to the Tesla bot and what we've seen over the last five years in these kind of AI updates of where's self-driving, we're still not even at level four. So things that we thought would be easy, you know, Elon Musk was promising we would have it in 2017, still aren't even really ready in in much of a real way for a beta consumption. And so I think that's maybe alleviated some of those concerns. Are these things coming? Yeah, absolutely. Will there be self-driving cars in a decade? Without a doubt. But by stretching out the timeline for innovation, I'm actually significantly less concerned now because, yes, jobs will be destroyed, but then new jobs are going to be created while we wait for things like self-driving car to hit level five and actually be able to work in a place like Alaska where there's snow everywhere and there's nothing really tangible for the cameras and the LIDAR to really play off of. So we'll get there. It's going to stretch out a lot more than we thought it would five years ago. And that's going to give us plenty of time, I think, to replace those jobs with new jobs. Well, and in a way, it's you bring an interesting point, I think, isn't the fact that we talk about the potential innovation, it becomes an antibody to the removal of value of the current human counterparts that are doing this stuff. The fact that we have these discussions and we talk about the the potential, the reach, the specific areas that we're aiming for, that we're not there yet, it gives the industry and humans a chance to kind of go, if this is coming, we better start to innovate processes and companies yeah. and the way that we work. Like I've I've never known anybody that automated themselves out of a job. They've automated themselves into a better opportunity almost every exactly. time. There are very certainly spe- some specific roles that like mechanical, robotic process automation, that type of stuff did replace some things but again like if we looked at the numbers it's such a small portion of the global industry and the ones that it is in fact it was literally killing people to do this work like this is stuff that shouldn't have been done by humans we just had no choice because there was no that we didn't we weren't born with the machines so it's uh yeah it's such an interesting thing i think The perfect case study for this is, you know, right at 100 years old, and that was Henry Ford and the Model T, and he was one of the very first kind of industrialists to bring in this idea of automation and mass manufacturing. 
And, you know, when you have one manufacturing line and you start to automate 20 or 30 percent of that mass manufacturing line, people get scared. And he had employees. I mean, he had family members. He had people from the community that were literally, you know, picketing outside of his factories because automation was destroying jobs. This is 100 years old. And what happened is that by automating things, he was able to bring down the price of the Model T so that more people could afford it. So then what happened? More people bought it. So he opened a second line and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. And before you know it, you're employing exponentially more people than you ever employed before. And you're doing it because you're becoming more efficient with your uses of capital. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. But that doesn't mean there's still not concern in the short term, you know, just like there was 100 years ago when people were picketing out in front of his, you know, manufacturing facilities. The other thing as well is the acceptance of the new innovation becomes a baseline pretty easily. The point leading up to it seems like a forever moment. It's like my example, actually, I used this in a presentation recently at, at work. And I said, like, you know, Elon went to first principles when it came to space travel. And we said like this, everybody told him it couldn't be done. It'd be silly to do it just even in that specific one area, you know, he then said, I'm going to land the rocket. I'm not just going to send it up. I'm going to land it on a launch pad. And they said, this is crazy. It can't be done. And then one step further, he does it repeatedly. And now Jeff Bezos goes to the edge of space and he lands the Blue Origin rocket nose up and not a single person said anything about it. Right. They were just like, it, yeah, that can be done now. Yeah. You're like it was like if it hadn't landed that way, people have been like, whatever, dude, <laughs> like they would have been angry at him. So yeah. it allowed us to move the conversation to something new, which was, OK, now that we can do this repeatedly, what can we do with this availability of technology? And now this is. And I there's an interesting thing as well. People said, well, we're lining the pockets of Elon as an example. And look, I'm not going to go, I don't want to have a discussion of the the weight of the billionaire or whatever the, the challenge there, but the result of the work that they've done has resulted in our the U.S. government saving $150 billion in spending while still sending objects to the ISS now. So there, yeah. it has had a significant benefit to the entire, every citizen of the United States has benefited as a result of that. So it's it's definitely there. And this is gonna be a whole new world for innovation, right? I mean, I don't really even think it's a question of if anymore. I mean, within a few years, the SpaceX, you know, heavy Falcon rockets, I mean, they're gonna be landing people on the moon. They're gonna be landing people on Mars. And by doing that, you're gonna need habitation, you're gonna need food, you're gonna need water, you're gonna need rocket propellant. And SpaceX will do some portion of those and the companies that come behind them will do some portion of those, but they're not going to do all of them. They probably won't do more than a few, you know, fractions of, of single digits of everything that has to be done. And so it literally opens up entire new worlds from an innovation standpoint, from a work standpoint, from an economic opportunity standpoint. And so, you know, hey, are they automating parts of a rocket manufacturing process that used to be manual? Yeah. Is that reducing a few jobs that used to be there? Yeah, for sure. But are 
are they now producing dozens and eventually hundreds more rockets than could have ever done, been done before? And through that process, opening up a whole new world of economic activity, absolutely. And so that goes back to that kind of more macroeconomic view that economies are dynamic. You are meant to automate stuff. That's been part of civilization since we invented the wheel that allowed us to do things faster and more efficiently. And that will continue to be part of our future. So looking at, and I apologize, my video has suddenly decided, speaking of like the amazing thing of technology, and yet somehow a simple uh, laptop can't keep up with human men in what. Uh, I've been there. I what, get it. What I love uh, about what you and the team are doing, Rob, is, again, very quickly jumping to the human value and impact that you can have with what you can do. So conversational AI has had its really, really interesting adoption in a lot of different areas. And some people didn't even realize, like it starts mostly in text, but the, 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 the voice conversational AI, where have you seen the challenges and, and the real wins in bringing this product to market? Yeah, I think the, the core of the challenge as I've kind of learned the space, you know, over the last almost half decade now is sort of the daisy chain effect. Conversational AI has multiple critical path things that all have to happen in a row. And if any one single element in that process has degradation, then everything after it is degraded. So let's say just using kind of easy numbers here, you have five critical processes within a conversational AI system. If every one of those systems is just degraded by 5%, take speech to text. If you had a speech to text engine that was 95% accurate, you were talking about a world-class product at that point, but you still have 5% degradation from 100. If you have four things after that for a total of five and each one is 95% accurate, you're still talking about an end result that's wrong 25% of the time. So you have to have every single one of these elements operating wow. at 98, 99, 99.5% accurate so that you can achieve something like 90% total you know success of, of orders in our case uh, over the course of the entire interaction and so that's the extremely hard problem is it's it's none of it can be just good or good enough literally every one of your core elements basically has to be world class or close to world class to get to a point where you are automating the vast majority of the orders that flow through a system so that i think in a nutshell is the hardest part of building a conversational ai platform yeah, and this is the the challenge. Like when, like you said, the demos are easy to spin up. When it goes well, it's it sounds it's easy to get to a a very simple MVP. Yeah, but you know, I, I always I'll go back if anybody's watched Silicon Valley. It was sort of a famous thing <laughs> when, when it comes up with this this visual. You know, you know, we can take up pictures of food, and I can show you what the food is. And he takes a picture hot, of the hot dog. Hot dog. <laughs> And he says hot dog and they're like, yeah, we did it. And then the next one is not hot dog. <laughs> and so it, if you, if it works, it works well, but then very quickly, the edge cases become core use cases, especially in conversation. Cause it's such a nuanced thing to deal mm -hmm. with. 
Yeah, it's um, the entire product is edge cases. There really is no happy path in these types of environments where we've seen the most customer facing conversational AI adoption is when it's really like limited term or just one, meaning you ask Alexa a question and it answers and you're done. And I mean, for those guys, their perspective on kind of world class is they can do like sort of one round of context follow up. Our average interaction with the customer has a minimum of 10 and we can have some that are 20 or 30 in terms of asking, answer, asking, you know, and carrying on a, a more true type of conversation of what you would expect from an employee. And so you have to carry the context through from all of that. You have to carry the nuance through from every, every one of those. Every single time you request a new response from the customer, you are opening yourself up to an edge case because they might say something like, nah, you know, you and I, we understand nah, that means no. But let's say simultaneously, the customer said that kind of quiet or their car radio was on, or like we had last week, there was a leaf blower in the background. And suddenly when speech to text tries to transcribe nah, that comes back as yeah. So you have in one moment completely inverted what the customer said, and you might be 15 turns into a conversation and the AI is 100% accurate. You missed one small word and now suddenly you may have failed the entire interaction of that conversation and taken the conversation off of a cliff, basically. So it's an entire business of edge cases and the, the cliffs surrounding the start and end of the conversation are, are steep and painful. Um, if you don't get what the customer is saying perfectly. You brought up a really great point and we talked about sort of the, the nuance of, you know, even we say we all speak English, or wait, I shouldn't say, even that, just the fact, the arrogance that I would automatically go to, we all speak English. <laughs> like One of the challenges is, yeah, we've got sort of dialect, we've got accents, nuances of the human language to then add it to the fact that you're ordering things that are called like the, can I get a double foogly moogly? And, and like, this yeah. is not even easy stuff to be able to translate, right? Nope. And that's still on the speech to text side. I mean, there's other things like, can I have the two for four? It's like, okay, well, what's the logic that goes into that? You know, is there two chili, chili dogs count for that? Is the, the two the price or the quantity? Is the four the price or the quantity? And so there's, you know, innumerable number of amalgamations of how these restaurants will package their food and their combos together and allowing the system to intelligently understand the core basis or principles or rules in every one of those situations. And then in something like, can I have the two for four? Basically, each of those words in there are super critical. And so if you just miss one word or mistranscribe it, it can wildly change the output of what the customer was actually intending to say to you. Well, and just even that's such a great example. Is it two, four, four or two, four, four? Like there are so many words that because which I even find that I've tried to use speech to text with simple dictation. And it just creates these giant run on sentences. And I often thought like, is, is there's got to be some way, some shortcut that can be used to say like, period, comma. 
But when you say them, it writes out the word and you can see. And then what happens is the frustration drives me to feel that the tech is failing, which I know it's a, an unfortunate human reaction, but it's actually, I just haven't figured out how to best interact with it. Right. We are seeing, I will say, that element getting better. I think this job and building this company would have been so much harder bordering on impossible technology aside a decade ago, purely from a customer psychology standpoint. You know, that was right around the time that we started seeing Siri, Alexa, and Google Home start to enter into the marketplace. Fast forward today, and there's hundreds of millions of these units sold. And so everybody in, in one capacity or another has interacted with one of these systems or likely heard somebody else interacting with one of these systems. And so that is helping to start to kind of train customers a little bit more. Like in normal communication, we're extremely fast. We tend to be a lot more vague. There tends to be a lot of nuance. There tends to be a lot of emotion and intonality and body language that all feed into our communication with each other. And I think people, as they've now gotten more and more used to interacting with these systems, they tend to be a little bit more halting, tend to be a little bit more direct. And ideally, if they can be a little bit louder and a little bit more patient, every one of those systems helps the accuracy of the system in terms of understanding customers. Such a good point. And so this is a funny story based on that. So the platform that I'm recording on is, is called SignalWire. I actually had Sean Heine, who was their chief product officer uh, on, uh, Sean was great. And I started using the platform. One of the advantages is that it allows you to, to actually stream multiple sources of audio simultaneously. Oh, cool. So actually multiplexing audio. The advantage to it is if you have four people on, or if you and I talk over each other, we don't, we can talk over each other and it continues versus the, I'll say other platforms have the problem of digital cutoff, where as soon as yeah. one person starts to talk, you get the, uh, and then everybody goes, oh, no, sorry, you good? And then they both start talking again. Like, so this platform gets rid of that. However, when I try, when it starts to happen, we naturally account for it. Like the, the people I talk to will stop talking if they hear me talk at the same time. I'm like, no, no, no. I was just sort of adding color to it. Like <laughs> we can all talk at the same time. It's actually fine. And it's, we've learned to behave within systems that are common now. And like you said, no one really doubts, hey, Siri, do this thing. Or, you know, hey, hey, Google, do a thing. We've actually kind of, it's, we've normalized it, which is kind of nice. Yeah, I would agree. Now, on the technology side, you talked, and if you don't mind, I'd love to dive in. You talked about currently, of course, you're sending data to the cloud. That's the easiest way to do this because you want to make sure, is it, you know, the most computing power is there, create the most viable centralization. Uh, it's a great platform approach. But you talked about the, the move eventually to do more stuff at the edge. And that's is important because we're going to see more, you know, first of all, just the risk of power loss and, and data yep. loss and other things could impact it. But then you really open the doors to interesting, unique use cases once you can have a real full edge presence. 
Yeah, it's really critical. And I mean, we're finding, at least within our industry, there's definitely a lot of concerns from these restaurants. You know, some are in major metropolitan areas and have fantastic, you know, high speed internet. And a lot are in really rural areas with really bad internet connections. And even, you know, where we are now, almost ready to go into 2022, there's still restaurants in some cases, I kid you not, that are on dial up. And so in those situations, it really precludes you from being able to bring your product to market if you don't have it capable on the edge. So where we're at right now is we just are starting in the more metropolitan, more well-connected areas, but it opens up basically the entire rest of the industry if you can push it to the edge. And you know, you wait until the middle of the night and you push downloads and updates to the system and things like that to keep it current. And it's a lot more from a kind of a device, you know, IT software management when you're so distributed like that on the edge versus just having one core platform that's in the cloud that's significantly easier to interact with and to modify. Um, but at least for us and for our industry and our use case, uh, that edge capability is going to be really critical for us in the future. The other thing that's interesting is as a founder and knowing that you've got to stay focused, how did you maintain that you talked about at the start that you've actually had to actively turn away folks that have brought lots of, Hey, well, I got this, Rob, you're doing this. What if you just did it here? How do you maintain that real pragmatic approach? Especially not just because it's you, but your entire team has to ultimately stay aligned on that vision of what you need to get done first before you branch out. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't hard. And I think this is a problem that uh, every entrepreneur and business owner faces and kind of determining their model, which is, you know, are we going to have one sort of generic system that's going to work well or work okay in kind of a lot of different industries? Or do we just want to have an absolutely best in class product, but in the foreseeable future, it's just hyper focused on one space. And I'm not actually a a uh, engineer. So I definitely come more from a business development operations type of background. And it's hard to turn away a, you know, $500 billion company that wants to talk to you about voice AI capabilities. Generally, what I've done, which has been helpful for me is I just throw out high barriers to entry for them. Because for these big companies, it takes nothing to waste a startup's time. Hey, this could be interesting. You know, let's see if all those guys over there want to go and work on this for free or nearly free, you know, for six months or a year. And then and then we'll see if we want to do anything with it. So it's been a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy to stay focused because, I mean, I have taken those meetings. I have talked to those companies, but then generally I just throw out high price points to them. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, well, if they pay this, then I can go hire, you know, one, two, three people. They can focus on adapting our platform because at the end of the day, it's just software, right? So it can be adapted to any industry, but it takes focused time and energy and concentration. And in pretty much every one of those situations, then the companies come back and said like, okay, well, it's not that big of a priority for now. And it works out in that way. And it's it's a way where we're not rejecting them or leaving a bad feeling with them. We just kind of lay out the case, the background, the reason, the work that goes into it, and then you know throw a big figure in front of them and say, hey, if you pay this, we'll do it. Um, and I think, especially right now within the conversational AI space, there's so many people working on it. There's so much going on. I think there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of real technology. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And so it's very 
choppy waters for companies to figure out how they want to navigate this process. And so by throwing that barrier up, it's pretty much kind of kept everybody out and allowed us to just stay on our sort of happy path from a go-to-market strategy. But that's just how it made sense for me. Yeah, no, it's great. And you, you, when you talk about that, it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of folks that are talking about the space and they have technologies versus some you know like yourself where you've literally you've chosen you've laser focused on a use case you're delivering it you're growing with lighthouse customers so you're doing that really really strong method of go don't do b until you've succeeded at a versus people that are like we're going to talk about a b and c and then maybe dabble in d right but they can create a lot of noise for you like I don't want to call it com competition, but it also like how do you do noise reduction against that stuff when because eventually your customers will be like, hey Rob, we some other people are approaching us because of course you go yeah. to Google and you look up, you know Valiant and the first thing that comes up is not Valiant because somebody's buying ad space above you, which is the first sign you're doing well is when people are buying ad space above you. So congratulations on that. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll tell you what, ironically, we're in a situation right now where customers are not a problem for us. So it's been nice that we just really don't have to focus much energy there. I mean, basically everybody in the market wants this technology. And so I think we've done a nice job of sort of positioning ourselves out there. And so, you know, as I look at the top 10 biggest brands, you know, in the entire United States, we're talking to or working with half of them. And so these large organizations are finding their way to us. And that's been really helpful too, because then I'm not trying to work my way up through cold calls or introductions or other marketing efforts and having to kind of work my way up the chain, you know, to somebody important that can actually make the decision and sign off on projects and determine to move forward. So I think that portion of it has been extremely healthy for us. Um, but I might need to go look and see who's bidding against us and put some yeah. energy in there. <laughs> the the other thing is just like as, as a technology side, like it's, it's very easy to look at the wonder of what's possible and you know as you go and you take on like adding new features or adding new customers and you'll see the expansion into potential like taking on this idea of moving more tech to the edge yeah. it's a real it's a real undertaking where you have to invest into it so when you're making decisions like that as a founder, you know, what are, what's your thought process around where like you have to be 100% revenue generating versus how much can I put into the longer term growth and viability? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm assuming here a little bit, but I don't think there's too many of us that are in this hardcore AI space, you know, that are really trying to bust new pathways into markets that have never existed uh, that are hyper profitable because <laughs> it's just huge amounts of work and huge amounts of investment into the technology and you have some level of just sort of carrying costs for every single customer and so the more you can improve the platform the more you can bring down those costs and improve your unit economics and so i you know, something like Edge or hardware, you know, those are decisions. I think bigger decisions are, 
you know, for how long should I keep trying to drive towards perfection versus, you know, focusing more on just trying to be profitable on a per unit basis. And I think at least from my perspective, I really view conversational AI as a true, you know, kind of customer service automation capability across dozens or hundreds of markets as a blue sky opportunity. So I would rather keep investing like crazy to get the product, you know, as capable as possible and then be able to push into as many additional spaces once we can transition out from a source of strength versus just trying to dig in on the unit economics and staying smaller and trying to make each one of those locations just a little bit more profitable. So I think it's a land grab right now. A lot of different companies have, you know, grab space in a lot of different industries. You know, we have three to four, I think, very real competitors that have good technology in our space that we're actively competing with to try to grab land in this space. And I think we will continue to see this at minimum for another five to 10 years. And then I would expect conversational AI to start going through a similar type of market consolidation that you've seen in a lot of the other industries uh, prior to this. Yeah. And the the interesting thing, of course, is because, you know, folks like you and I were were a bit more aggressively focused on the the competitor space. And in the end, there's such a huge consumer environment for this stuff. There really is. If you spend too much time focusing on the competitors, you get lost chasing them instead of chasing new business. And it's, you know, so we always have to be mindful. But of course, the the inner nerd in me is always like, oh, you know, where are we technologically aligned with somebody? And, you know, make sure I can always think right. about differentiation without being stuck on like, oh, they changed their messaging again. I got to like, re- like, you can't be attached to folks that are in a parallel space too much. Yeah, I would agree. And, and I still think there's some challenges and some education for the market as well. You know, we recently ran into a situation where a company in our space um, was telling potential customers like, hey, we're, you know, 90% plus accurate. And they were just kind of leaving out that, you know, but we have some people in the background that are fixing things, you know, on the fly to help us get to that number. And so the customer wasn't quite as sophisticated enough to ask and the other company didn't bring it up. And so there is still an element, I think, of kind of smoke and mirrors out there. This is a very unconsolidated, unstabilized market. It's a bit of the wild, wild west. There are no norms. There are no level systems to compare against. There are no, you know, uh, independent third parties to verify capabilities and stuff like that. And so we see companies, you know, throwing out pretty uh, stretched metrics, you know, relative to what we see both in terms of what state of the art technology And when we test, what's their system actually capable of? And so that's been kind of an interesting process of bringing this product to market and kind of navigating against the sales and marketing that maybe sometimes there's, you know, somewhere between kind of disingenuous to just sort of, you know, withholding information because the customer didn't know to ask. Yeah, that's a tough one. And like you said, especially when it's a new technology and a new space, Mm -hmm. No one knows that there's a mechanical Turk hiding behind the scenes yeah. and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and even look at, you know, Google spends billions of dollars, you know, developing their Google Home system. And I heard a number at one point that said they still have up to 30% of interactions being reviewed by a human. Yeah. So it it is the very 
dirty secret of the industry of which everybody that's in it understands crystal clear. And those who don't understand it and who are trying to figure it out and who are trying to find a way to take advantage of this technology, I think often find maybe murky, kind of maybe feel like they were a little misled. And so I think there just there needs to be a lot more transparency, you know, on our part and our, our as a technology group as we bring these technologies to market to be real clear about where things work and where things don't work. Now, in, I don't want to put a limit on the on the use cases that you've got, like because it, I'll say it's more focused and that you're less likely to bump into the need to do real deep like sentiment analysis. Like there's obviously points where that would come in, I would imagine. Yep, when someone sure. starts yelling into the speaker like Samuel L. Jackson, you know, <laughs> it, you're you're probably time to uh, make sure that somebody taps the headset and gets out of this uh, but like versus some of the like the call center ais they're they're much more oh, i feel like i'm bad to say it. they're much more challenging to implement because they're specifically going after doing stuff like continuous sentiment analysis to gauge the health of the call because they've got a yeah. different long-form conversation to attack so i don't mean to say it's harder it's a different challenge that they're solving yours, where do you see the variability in what you can start to do with some of the yeah. deep capabilities in NLP and, and actual analysis? Yeah, I mean, again, going back to, I mean, we are taking live conversations and the vast majority of the conversations we are taking are being handled entirely by the AI. And it took us a long time to get there, but that is a very real product with very real capability. I do believe what we are doing is exponentially harder than something like sentiment analysis. I mean, that is extremely valuable. To those, you know, companies' credits, they're probably making a lot more money than we are as we're trying to grind out this hard space. But think about it with that sentiment analysis example. If it doesn't work correctly in one of ten cases, does anybody know? Does the does the end customer know? Do they care? Does the call center rep on the phone? Do they know? Do they really care? You know, maybe if the sentiment picks up the calls going really bad, it goes to pull in a manager or they just use it to monitor it after the fact. But it doesn't stop the core capability from happening. The customer and the call center rep still did their call. Could it have been better? Probably. They still did their call with what we're doing and with what other companies in our space are doing. If we miss something, the whole call goes off the rails or theoretically can go off the rails if it's not recoverable and it's front and center with the customer. So it would be more accurate to say that the call center person is actually an AI trying to carry on a conversation with the customer. That's much harder than just passively monitoring stuff and tagging it for data or analysis or flagging it to pull somebody in because it doesn't fundamentally break the core product if it doesn't work. If we go off of one of our edge cases, it fundamentally breaks the product. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. And, and anybody would go through this, like just think about the last interaction they had with somebody through an order process at a quick serve restaurant. Yeah. And odds are the last thing you did, you we as humans made a mistake doing the order or like when they do the read, that's why they do the read back. And I love that it's like, do you want to, you know, actually, no, no, let me go with number two instead of number one. And then it's like, okay, uh, we'll do that. Is there anything else we can help you with? Okay, what I've ordered, I've got for you now is X. 
And like that rapid validation and the fact like there's so much that can go wrong in the seconds leading up to that. They can be like, I should want number two. No, not number two, number three. I mean, number, yeah, number, th yeah, number three. Yeah. Like just writing those words down. Yeah, big deal. Uh, you transcribe it. That's basically a glorified trans. But actually taking that and turning it into an order. And responding, and responding intelligently in that situation. And maybe you could parse all of that and you got what you needed, but maybe you have to parse all of that and the customer was still ambiguous. You know, we had a situation when we were uh, working with a restaurant chain here in Denver called Good Times, where we were automating breakfast orders. And so we had a one customer, I remember he came up and he was like, hey, could I have uh, six sausage burritos? No, no, wait, actually I want uh, uh, three bacon burritos uh, and then sausage burritos. And so it's like, uh, do you want nine burritos? Do you want six burritos? You know, there's a lot of ambiguity in there. And so then the system also has to have context. And so that's an area where we see, you know, the company spending billions of dollars and they're just scratching the surface of context. Yet for any company that's trying to do customer service automation where they're directly talking to a customer, you have to be able to manage a tremendous amount of ambiguity and related context and then try to respond, as we talked about early on with the daisy chain issue, perfectly every time. And you might have at minimum 10 turns back and forth. And all you need is just one of those to go wrong. And then the entire thing could be a failure. And so it's it's a very you know, painful and uh, exacting process to get to a point where you have a product that is kind of widespread, adoptable, and scalable within the industry. It's an amazing time to be in this world, though, that we can <laughs> do this, right? Like to think of the technology yeah. that's enabled you to do this and that you and the team have chosen to take it on and you're succeeding. Like what a, what a fantastic world, isn't it? Oh, I love it. I mean, I, I, not to be kind of corny, but I mean, I still get goosebumps when I review sessions and it's just perfect all the way through, you know, cause I know how hard and painful and grueling that work has been to get to that point. And so when I can sit down and listen to a minute, two minute, two and a half minute order and everything flows perfectly throughout the entire order, it's like, oh my God, like it's live, like it's it's real, like it, it took us a long time and like this is a product, you know, it's just, it's such an exciting experience. And, and I truly, I just, I couldn't be more excited to be in the AI space because this is ultimately going to be the brain's of everything, right? And and I think, I don't see it as much as I would like, but there should be a lot more coupling, I think, between robotics companies and AI companies. And if we go sort of full circle here back to the Tesla bot, there's, you know, maybe one or two Nobel prizes that'll be won by an engineering team that can actually pull off what Elon Musk talked about yesterday. But let's say that they do. It's still an extremely capable system that is going to be a paperweight unless it has the brain of an AI behind it. Yeah. It has to know to be able to carry on conversations with people around it. If it's about to drop something on somebody and somebody says stop and yells it at the robot and they're in an echoey warehouse, it's got to pick that up perfectly the first time and do exactly what was requested. And customers, as we found, just because they're so ambiguous, they're not going to write a script for a robot to go and get their mail or go buy them, you know, a gallon of milk, uh, like Elon Musk talked about, like the system's going to have to be intelligent enough. Somebody's going to say, go get me milk. 
And the robot's going to have to intuitively know what go get me milk means, which is like turn around, walk to the door, open the door, walk to probably a car, get into the car, drive to the grocery store, walk into the grocery store, go get the milk, pay for it, you know, and then repeat all the steps to get back. And that is where AI lives. And so it's just such an exciting time industry-wide. It's just in its infancy. It's going to be really fun to watch this technology evolve over the next 10 to 20 years as it just continues to get smarter, more sophisticated, and starts to proliferate into more places that ultimately I think will make our lives better, both as consumers and as employers, you know, and as coworkers. And I'll, I want to tap into something that, so, I mean, I said technology, amazing. Our place in the world to be able to do this is pretty fantastic. Yeah. I don't, I was going to say, what are the risks that we have, but that I don't want to take a dark turn. I want to tap into something else that I saw in your bio. You're a member of, of entrepreneurs organization. So EO yeah. has come up a lot. I've had, you know, when you do a couple of hundred of these interviews, you eventually bump into this common things and EO comes up a lot. So I'd love to hear, Rob, how did you discover this and and what's been the value that you found from being a part of that organization yeah so for anybody listening who doesn't know eo stands for entrepreneurs organization so it's basically a international um, networking group organization where entrepreneurs come together so here in colorado we've got an extremely healthy chapter. I think we're 160, maybe going on 200 uh, people that are in our organization. And every single month, they're putting on different events. So a couple of days ago, a guy that owns a brewery here in Denver gave anybody who wanted to a tour of his brewery and gave everybody free beer and talked about the business and the economics of it, things like that. Uh, there was a lady that uh, owned a bunch of restaurants. You know, She gave people tours of her restaurants, explained how they work. She had a very cool kind of collective thing going on where they renovated an old like warehouse and they had like a dozen different restaurants inside there. And you can go sit at any restaurant. You can get food from multiple restaurants and talked about kind of where the evolution that she saw restaurants going. We uh, at one point, I think it was two years ago, we brought in a guy from the military who was the one that found Saddam Hussein. And he talked about all the work that he had to do to be able to kind of track down, you know, where Saddam Hussein was. So it's it's just fantastic and, and in an intellectually exciting to be around similar people that are trying to grow companies. Um, it's amazing how many times we all run into the same problems. So to be able to chat through those problems, share experiences of how you overcame those issues, could be partners, could be fundraising, could be legal, could be challenging customers. Because ultimately at the end of the day, it is lonely at the top of an organization. You don't want to complain to your direct reports and bring them down. You know, you, you need to kind of sometimes bottle some of that stuff up and you just try to keep people kind of excited about the mission and the goals and pushing forward. But then you really do need people that you can lean on that have similar experiences that have been what you've been through. So, you know, the tours, the networking, the speakers, like those things are fun. But I think the core of EO is what's referred to as forums. And so within our bigger chapter of 160 to 200 people, it breaks it down and everybody gets put into a forum of about five to sometimes 10 people kind of on the bigger end of end of the spectrum and you get together once a month and then everybody talks about like hey here's what i got going on you know here's what's working here's what's not working you can give each other experience shares you can lean on each other and then even within our forum we'll bring in speakers and it could be you know speakers to give you education on 
business, you know, life goals. They could help you with relationships, you know, retirement planning, succession, things like that. And so it just, it creates this community of people that know what you're going through, that can help you and that can support you, be it in business or be it in life. And then because it's an international organization, if you travel to pretty much any kind of major city globally, there are chapters of other EO members there. And I'll regularly get emails of like an entire like forum that are flying out to Colorado. And they're like, hey, if there's anybody local that like wants to meet up, let us know. And you just get to meet all these cool people. I, I attended one with a group that came up from Costa Rica and really hit it off with a guy. He owned a custom software development company. I had just recently left my custom software development company. We connected on everything. And by the end of the night and a bunch of beers, you know, he gave me free access to use his place in Costa Rica whenever I wanted to, you know? And so it's like, what are you going to get those types of experiences, you know, in your day-to-day -day life when you're just kind of bumping into people. And so it's just, it's, it's a, it's a obviously something that's near and dear to my heart as I was able to quickly pontificate on it. But I think for anybody that's running a company, I would just highly encourage you to check it out. It's just nice to be surrounded and able to interact with just really cool people. Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was Colin, goodness great, apologies, I can't remember his last name, from Sheets and Giggles. He's in Colorado and he was the first one that turned me on to the organization and came yeah. organization. And then, like I said, I've probably half dozen other people now since then have brought it up. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get closer to this. It's and I've, I've actually looked at the organization. It's good because there's like a minimum as far as like the range of of folks who can get involved. It's very targeted. There's definitely, yep. it's not like a hangers-on Reddit group. This is people who yep. are active. They, you have to have a certain amount of active revenue. Yep. So you're, you're really and truly aligned with a community of people that are are doing something, and it's. It's just so refreshing to me, like to see that that because there's community for technology, there's community for so many things, but for founders, it's a really difficult and lonely spot to be mm -hmm. in sometimes, and to have that peer group accessible without having to like engage advisors. And ultimately, like yeah. everyone wants to give you ideas because they know they can get a hunk of your company. That's ultimately what a lot of the the people that I right. want advice from people that are living the life, not who just want a taste of mine. Right. And, and that is exactly what it is. And I think you also hit on something that was kind of important to me, too, is it's not the hanger honors. Because I went to two or three of the other big kind of national global sort of groups kind of like this. And they just tend to be stuffed with like consultants, you know, and, and people that kind of want to live in your orbit. Um, again, as I go back to my, you know, forum, everybody's roughly in a range from a revenue standpoint. There's one guy that's in the, the hundreds of millions uh, from a revenue standpoint. Um, everybody's got similar sized organizations in terms of the number of people they have. And we're all because we're all living it, we can all collaborate. So in my custom software development company, you know, I crashed and burned with my partners, you know, and they bailed out of the company. I'd say at least half of the people that are in my forum, my, my group of about nine people, probably about half of them have had partner, partnership issues since I've been in the group. And that's a lot of experience that I can share. You know, the one guy mentioned that's in the hundreds of millions from a revenue standpoint, he's able to give a tremendous amount of advice to us that aren't at that stage yet that are still growing and building our companies because he's done a lot of the things that we've done. 
Um, we even have one guy in there that's a managing partner of one of the law firms. And he very kindly, you know, will, will answer questions and, and give us some, you know, at least sort of a direction of where to go from a legal standpoint and things like that. And so it's just, it's so helpful. And a lot of us I'll find, you know, we'll start forum and we'll just kind of feel like heavy and it's difficult, you know, and by the time I'm done and we all go get dinner together after forum, I just feel like light and, and happy and just kind of rejuvenated again. So it's just sort of good for my soul anyways, to just be around really interesting and exciting people doing cool things. Yeah. Cause it, like you said, if you, when you go to, you know, meetups and, and just like general <clears throat> like events driven organizations, you, you tend to get a lot of people who are like, you know, like they're entrepreneurs and like, I'm not saying that one isn't right or, or one is better or whatever, but you don't want to be in a group where you're surrounded by people who just run Shopify stores. I know as a guy yeah, who runs a sure. Shopify store, I got a successful coffee business, but I, I don't have the same thing to bring to the group versus my experience in the advisory and, and right. entrepreneurial side. So yeah, you can see the cut line where Plus those, those meetup groups, they are wonderful. They tend to be a lot more um, superficial might be the best way to put it. You know, you don't get really deep from a connection standpoint. You might share some ideas, hear about some cool companies. People come, people go, you know, there's a lot of transients to it. You know, for our forum, we've got real strict requirements on attendance, you know, because we really believe that time together sort of builds bonds and builds connections. In October, uh, my forum and all of our spouses were all flying to Napa Valley together. We rented a house together. We were lining up different wineries that we're going to go to, different restaurants we're going to go to in uh, two weeks. We're all going to meet up at a lake out here in uh, Colorado, and we're going to bring our families and our kids. And so it's a lot, I think, uh, more consistent and much deeper ties than what you might see in some of those other organizations. Yeah, and if it, it's finding the the group of people who are aligned and alike. And yeah, it's, it's tough to find those two things together. You can get, find a lot of alignment, but then you're, <clears throat> you know, they're if they're so disparate in where they are, company position wise, you know, it's uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it sounds like such a great organization. I've heard nothing but really respectful words spoken mm -hmm. from folks that are part of it. So I definitely yeah. recommend that. I guess in closing, uh, sadly, we lost a couple minutes in the middle because my for anybody that's still that's watching on the YouTube, they'll see that I'm on a phone instead of on a uh, on my regular rig here. Rob, I'd love to get your advice for folks that are getting started, and you know, especially now, COVID and the state of the world means we're going to be remote longer, and. Yeah it's a great opportunity i believe like or there are opportunities to be had and yeah. so for folks that maybe were on the cusp people that are already remote and, and thinking maybe this is my time to start up the my my entrepreneur mindset what advice do you have kind of today it's it's august of 21 what 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 can the next three months be for somebody who wants to to think big yeah. So if you already have your business idea and you know what you want to do, then just get started. Um, it's the most critical thing. I just re uh, finished reading a book called Super Founders, and they talked about what was the number one key to people's success. 
and the kind of uh, Reddit too long didn't read is uh, past success, which sounds cheesy, uh, but it actually makes sense. So people that have have started companies are then more likely to be more successful and are more likely to build billion dollar companies um, having done it in the past. So I think it's just like anything, you just, you need experience and you need time. I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, they try to make their first company a billion dollar company. So, you know, goal one is just start. Goal two might be, um, you know, go easy on yourself. Don't think you have to build the next Uber or next Microsoft with your first company. Think of it in terms of training for a marathon, you know, and your billion dollar company is running the marathon, right? You need to do things leading up to that. The easiest place to start a new business is a service-based company. There are so many opportunities in this country right now. It's astounding. Like, think of anything. It doesn't have to be super exciting. I mean, it could literally be a landscaping company. It could be a house cleaning company. It could be a painting company. People out there are desperate for services. As a you know, kind of quick example, my wife and I are going to remodel our basement. We're adding a bedroom and a bathroom. When we initially got it quoted about 18 months ago to now, not only have prices gone up about 220%, we had to bring out like 15 contractors to just find one contractor that wanted to take the project on. And so there's huge opportunities out there for people to just start really good service-based businesses. And not only I think is there sort of a lot of opportunity from a work standpoint, I think a lot of people out there think that, you know, it has to be this big grandiose thing and it, and it really does not. So start a service-based company, get good at it, deliver great customer service, build a business. You, number one, potentially get yourself out of the rat race. You're able to create a job for yourself. You're able to create income for yourself. Maybe you're able to then have an exit and sell the business and you use that capital to start your billion dollar company or kind of more like I did. You know, I got the service based company to a good place and then I came up with the idea for my you know billion dollar product based company. I hired somebody to run my service based company for me and then I went full time on the product based company. So you open up a tremendous amount of freedom for yourself if you just are owning a business and just running a business. So just start. Go easy on yourself consider service first and focus on coming up with your billion dollar idea while you're already working for yourself and making money. That doesn't inspire people to just take a, take a breath and think about what the possibilities are. I don't know what is. So yeah. Rob, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. No and uh, thank you for writing me out during my technical troubles here today. Gotcha. Uh, if, if people did want to get connected online or elsewhere, uh, what's the best way they can do so? Yeah, feel free to just shoot me an email. It's rob at valiant.ai or find us online or any of our social media sites. A beauty. Excellent. Well, Rob, uh, thank you very much. Lots of great lessons. I'm 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 bullish on the possibility for Valiant. I like what Thanks. you're doing. And as they say in the world, you you bet on three things, the three T's, team, TAM, and technology. And the reason it starts with team is because you can tell when somebody has potential in something. You don't even need to know what the something is, but you know somebody's got the potential. I would bet on your team. So Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks very much.